0: Hey, Danny. Hey, Kevin. So, who is our Wordist of the Week? This week's a good one. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Kind of both of one of our favorites. Oh, yeah. All right.
1: A Wordist. A person who believes words have absolute meaning, willing to kill or die
0: for their beliefs. Each episode follows a Wordist who tells stories through words, images, or audio. They may not be martyrs or murderers, but they are masterful storytellers. Welcome Welcome to to The Wordist. So last week we covered Stan Lee and it was pretty interesting. What did you think? I liked it. Um,
1: I learned a lot in the episode and the research coming up to it. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you guys are into Stan Lee, I would suggest taking a look at our last episode. It may not be as long as this one, but it'll be fun.
0: Yeah, and it's now available on uh, just about everywhere now, right? Yeah, just about Apple
1: Podcasts, you know, Pocket Casts, Spotify even. So yeah. you guys uh,
0: go check that out and uh, tell us what you think. So now we're looking at what I would consider one of the great um, storytellers of the 20th century – Definitely the first half of the 20th century, and maybe someone who isn't quite as, as uh, you know, like if you said, who are the best uh, writers of the 20th century? I doubt that C.S. Lewis would be on the top of very many people's lists. I actually think you're wrong on that. I don't think a lot of people would. I think they'd put him in the top 10 maybe, but he is a great writer, and, and yeah, he's typically known for the Narnia Chronicle, yeah. the Chronicles of Narnia, which today we look at more of as children's books. But he's done a lot more than just the oh, yeah. Chronicles of Narnia,
1: like the Screw Tape Letters. Uh, he wrote *Mere Christianity*, which is what a lot of uh, Christian apologeticists will will use to to kind of as a source or a research you know, you know idea for what they would believe.
0: And yeah, and if you have if you haven't ever read *Till We Have Faces*. Oh, yeah. By C.S. Lewis. It's not very well appreciated. Appreciated. It's kind of different from what you expect from him, but it's a wonderful story, and I, I love it. In fact, I oh, would yeah. say it's probably one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. So tell me about C.S. Lewis. Let's just quickly talk a little bit about his early days. and. Well, he was born in, Belfurst, Ireland in Belfast,
1: Ireland. Belfast? Yeah, Belfast. Yeah, sorry. I'd... Bad speaking. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, it was Belfast, Ireland in 19... Uh, 19- or 1898, November 29th. So just before the turn of the century. Okay. And, um, career wise, C.S. Lewis went on to teach at Oxford university and he became a renowned Christian apologist writer. He used logic and philosophy to support the tenets of his faith. He is also known throughout the world as the author of the Chronicle Narnia Fanny Fantas- Chronicles of Narnia fantasy series, which have been adapted into, you know, various films for the big and small screens.
0: Yeah. And so, um, it's interesting that someone who's more seen as like a pop theologian and an author of children's fiction, but you know, I mean, he's an Oxford trained, Oh yeah, uh, (laughs) he's not only got his training there and taught there, right? Yeah. Um, people would be
1: surprised to know, uh, he actually worked, uh, in close proximity to J.R. Tolkien
0: and they were close friends actually. Yeah. He and Tolkien were best of friends. In fact, uh, Probably uh, Tolkien had a big influence on Lewis becoming a believer.
1: Yeah. Um, now, there is something about Lewis that I kind of want to touch on Touch on that's really interesting. The fact that C.S. Lewis himself was
0: a British spy. A British spy. C.S. Lewis, the author of The yeah. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. A British spy, you say. He worked for the British Secret Intelligence
1: Service, the you know, MI6, who James Bond worked for. Okay, so he,
0: C.S. Lewis and James Bond are running around mm-hmm. in, uh, in uh, uh, Carmen Gins and <laughs> with <Yeah>. guns. And <laughs> Can you imagine uh, him? He goes to the bartender, and like, who are you? And he's like, Lewis, C.S. Lewis. Oh, okay, <laughs> Sorry. now you're getting silly here. All right, what, what did he do? I mean, surely he wasn't a, an operative, you know, a, an in-field spy. Well,
1: so there's a, a journalist named Harry Lipo. He writes for Christianity Today. All right, he discovered on eBay a record that was being sold from somewhere in Iceland, and he was like, he was, and it was supposed to be a speech that he gave, and and he was like, I I kind of know a lot about C.S. Lewis. I don't remember him ever giving any kind of speech like this, because uh, he's a quote unquote C.S. Lewis expert. Like he knows almost everything about him, and um, he explains that the curiosity led him to buy the record. All right. So he got this record and it was two sets of records, uh, side one and then side three or part one and part three would be on oh, part would be on side one and then side three. Uh, and then part two and four would be on another record on side one and side two of that record. And basically it was a speech that he gave to the people of Iceland. And the reason why he gave it is because the MI6 commissioned him to win over the hearts of the people in Iceland. Do you know why? Why? Because in World War II, that was a great place for the uh, for their navy, not navy, their air force to search for the naval vessels of German, you know, arm- armies. Okay, so he was essentially just trying to win Iceland to the side of the Allies. Yes, but they had taken it over, and they were like, "Well, we don't want them, you know, angry at us for you know." You know, coming in and invading them. So, C.S. Lewis, we want you to use your, you know, your knowledge of, of writing and public speaking skill as a wordist, <laughs> yeah, to convince them to to our side. <laughs> and so, how about that, there's only one of like the record. You know how I said that uh, part one and part three are on one record, and part two and part four are on another record. The reason why is because they were together, and you would flip them over once you were once you were done with each of them, but. The part two and part four record is missing. Oh, okay. And cool. so it's it, we only have fragments of the speech. The second disc itself is gone. Yeah, and so we only have part one and part three. So if you're out there and you've got the the part two and part four record, you have a serious gold mine on you, and it's worth a lot of money. Actually, it's not worth anything. We'd take it off you <laughs> for five bucks. Yeah. And so there you have it. C.S. Lewis was officially a british spy. <laughs> okay. Because I mean that's that's I mean obviously he wasn't over there, you know, stopping goldfinger or anything, but yeah. it he he did help in World War II and he was working for the MI6. That
0: is cool though. I mean it shows that he was a patriot first of all for his nation and he, you know, he served the crown as british citizens would say. So Yeah. So that's that's very interesting. I, that's one of those details that probably not a lot of people know about CS Lewis. But I think it makes him, I don't know, more cool. I know, like, you don't think of,
1: like, when you look back at C.S. Lewis, you're like, ah, he's probably just some boring old man, you know, who's kept talking about his faith and, you know, the books that he was writing and then teaching at Oxford. And
0: yet, there he was. He was a secret spy. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. That's pretty good. So, and then later in his life, um, you know, tell us about. After that, what what comes next?
1: Well, um, as he was, you know, getting somewhat famous for the books that he was writing and and everything, uh, he actually met his wife, but she passed away about three years prior to him, and that three years was very riddled with health issues for him, and he actually died November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, of chronic kidney disease. Okay, he he collapsed at his at his home and you know, was taken to the hospital and then he passed away.
0: Probably one of the more interesting eras of his life. We've kind of chosen to, you know, kind of skim over it. And that's because it's been very, very well told. Yeah. And that is the story of his meeting his wife, Joy, mm-hmm. uh, oh. lost her last name. Yeah. Anyway. Gresham. Joy Gresham. And she um, had a young son. He moved from America where she had become a fan of his writings. Mm-hmm. And he had a radio program, a very popular radio program, mostly in America, for a long time. And so she would write to him and they kind of would have correspondence. And then she came to the United States or came to England to visit him. And uh, they they sort of at first had a marriage of convenience, yeah, because of her citizenship. She wanted to immigrate to the United to, to the United Kingdom. Um, But, of course, he fell in love with her as a result of that. But go see the movie, or go rent the movie Shadowlands. Danny hasn't seen that yet. I really want to, though. I just haven't gotten around to it. We're going to look it up and and watch that real soon. But that's a nice movie with Anthony Hopkins as the lead role of playing C.S. Lewis. Oh, one of the great actors. Yeah, and he's he's really good in it. There's another older version, which some people say is a little more faithful to the story. Um, So you may want to... Watch both if you're a big fan of his. But if you watch the second one, it's a little bit better as far as a modern-day story. It's, yeah. they, they play a little more fast and loose with the facts in well, it. But. It's,
1: interesting that, it's interesting that you brought her up because I've actually met her son. Okay. C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham. All right? He came to my school, North Greenville University, to speak. And you know he talked to a few of the students afterwards. And I got to meet him. And he's a really cool guy, actually. And um, he actually told this really funny story. And, um, cause he introduced, he goes, he goes, I actually have met Winston Churchill. And I was like, no way. And so he, he tells the story and he goes, oh yeah. And he goes, I was very young. Uh, he goes, I don't remember how old I was, but I was, I was younger than 10 or so. And, uh, I was in an, a garden behind some fancy house. And he goes, I don't remember where, but Winston Churchill was there and he was sitting in this, this large rocking chair and he had a cigarette, no, a, not a cigarette, a cigar in between his fingers as he rested on the rocking chair. And he, he looked over at Douglas and he said, boy. And Douglas looked over at him and then he leaned over, almost like towering over Douglas Gresham, and he goes, so was I once.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, I don't know, uh, Douglas Gresham is just a really cool guy. Uh, um, he, he's he's very, very knowledgeable about C.S. Lewis and all of his works. You can ask a question about just about any of the things that he's written and he almost has it straight from memory you know he, he could probably <laughs> tell you the whole book from start to finish you know
0: yeah.
1: and so uh, he's really cool uh but let's you know let's get back to c.s lewis i, I would suppose
0: well, so
1: go ahead uh
0: so how how are you introduced to to c.s lewis and his works well <clears throat> my mother was a big fan of c.s lewis she was old enough to Remember probably the early publishing of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and how oh, he yeah. became a popular um, radio personality in America. Uh, she was born in '36, so you know definitely years after he was. But you know, her young childhood days, she had read the books uh, of the Chronicles of Narnia, and so when I was a young child, probably six, seven, not maybe, not, maybe not even that old, she read them. She taught our uh, Sunday school class, and um, and the children's church, like when the adults would have the regular church service, yeah. they would let the children you know, under like eight years old stay down in the basement of the church. And so she taught that. And part of what she did is she read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to oh, us yeah. in that. And so I remember just, I mean, that was my favorite part of children's church was sitting and listening to this fantasy story of these kids going <laughs> into a wardrobe and meeting this witch and this this, uh, uh, amazing lion named Aslan. And then she would tell us about the symbolism, how it was kind of, uh, as Lewis himself said, it's not an allegory of the coming of Jesus Christ. Instead, what he said is it's a whole different story. But he thought in his mind, what would it be like if there was another world out there Mm -hmm. that existed where these, you know, sort of a fairy tale kind of world where animals could talk and where there were queens uh, who had magical powers and all of these things. And uh, God wanted to send his son Jesus into that world. How would he send him? Well, instead of sending him as a a man born in Bethlehem uh, as a baby, he would send him as a speaking, talking lion with amazing powers. And that's the character Aslan in the story the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then, of course, the other books – uh, one's a prequel and the other books are sequels to that. And yeah. so, you know, when she read those first books to me, or the first book uh, was the, that he published was Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I just was so amazed by it. And so I got interested and began to read some of the other books. And then I had a friend, a best friend, who had the whole series. And so I would borrow one book after another from him and he would yeah. let me uh, read the rest of them. But I I've read Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe multiple times. It's one of the few... I'm not one of these people who reads books over and over again, Mm -hmm. but that's one of the few books that I've probably read three or four times. Oh, wow!
1: I think, um, for me, the first introduction to any of C.S. Lewis's works was the movie version of the line, the witch in the wardrobe that was done by Disney back in 2002, I believe, or no. Yeah, it was 2002. I think, um, no, 2004. Actually, Mm -hmm. I remember now 2004 and, um, I was mesmerized more by the movie making of the story because it was kind of cool. Like you got to see this huge battle at the end and the, the childlike wonderment of Lucy experiencing the world for the first time. And it was, it was just one of those stories that kind of resonated with me as a child. And I always remembered. And, you know, as I, as I grew older, I read the other books and then I started looking up C.S. Lewis's other works like mere Christianity and that kind of stuff. But I, I think, for me, my favorite C.S. Lewis book is still The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, like easily. Um, even though there's been other books that I really like, like Mere Christianity and The Screwtape Letters.
0: Well, I would count Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It is probably my favorite, but I also just really love Till We Have Faces. Yeah. And that's probably more of an obscure book of his. Yeah, and what's that one about? Well, it's it's interesting. I just kind of looked it up, the 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 foundation and the background behind it,
1: because isn't it a Greek like yeah. mythology story? C.S.
0: Lewis had read the story of uh, uh, Cupid and Psyche. Yeah. Okay. Or Suke, if you're pronouncing it, you know, in Greek terms. But um, and when he read that story, he was just haunted by it some way, and so he kind of wanted to retell the story. And um, I know that he wrote it after his wife died. Yeah. And it, the the book is much darker
1: than his other stories. Yes. And it it kind of speaks. You know, a lot to his mental state at the time because he was very sad about his wife's dead he, death. Like he, he loved her very much, and people noticed that he was not his normal chipper
0: self, as they say. Yeah, it, it's it's set in a um, a kingdom, and there's a, a king who's the the girl's father, the main character's father, and he is kind of a brutish, brutal yeah kind of king, and he does not love his his daughter at all. I mean, she, yeah, she seems like a, an annoyance to him. And in fact, he, she almost is like, um, reminds him of some of his darkest thought thoughts and things relating to his wife. And so she doesn't have that appreciation of being that kind of King. And so she's sent off into the wilderness and, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm trying to get the details of it because it, I, I just reread it, you know, earlier this year. Um, and, uh, Anyway, it, it's it's very very dark, very um, – uh, I'm trying to – I'm having trouble coming. I'm not a, as good a wordist as he is, so I'm having trouble well, coming up with words. I remember um, a striking bit of symbolism
1: You know, when I went through it. The daughter, the main character uh, – I can't remember her name at the moment. But the book or the narrator says that she is too ugly to describe in words. Yeah. Yet her sister is – practically almost by image golden like in almost in the literal sense yeah and it was i i was very haunted by that like you know how you say he was haunted by the straw i was haunted nearly by that description and i was like i was like that's kind of how we see ourselves you know we we, we can't imagine our worth you know we're, we're we're just so awful and then everyone else they seem so amazing you know and so beautiful and it, i was just like wow like yeah and the, they're hitting
0: the, me hard C S, see us you know i mean the faces part of it is you know re- relates to their physical appearance but it also is more of their self awareness of who they are yeah and the sisters have a very um antagonistic relationship yeah. at first and then later on that changes as the one sister goes off and lives yeah. in this uh in the woods with with this god that is out there and and just things change. It's just a wonderful story, and you should really, if you haven't read it, and you yeah. really like C.S. Lewis, it should definitely be added to your, your reading list because I think it's one of the most interesting. Um, it's it's the most different, I think, of any of his stories. Oh yeah. Because he's also got the the space trilogy. Yeah. You know, and those are very interesting and, as well. And I read them. I read one of them, Paralandra, I read in college because I took a class
1: on C.S. Lewis. And technically, it was supposed it was supposed to end up being a space quartet. But the fourth book wasn't finished before he passed away. And it's called The Dark Tower. And they actually found manuscripts of his writings of it. And people who are C.S. Lewis experts have been trying to piece together and try to maybe create a final chapter to the story. Oh, OK. So I had it
0: to, to be able to publish it?
1: Yeah. And it, well, they have, they have published it. Um, but they published a unfinished version. And now I think they're actually going to try and make a finished kind of copy, and I'm like that. I, I'm I'm looking forward to that because the space trilogy was actually kind of fun. It's not as good good as Narnia, but it was you know like C.S. Lewis doing sci-fi. So yeah. Um. So do you have a like? I love quotes, so I'm going to ask you. Do you have a, a C.S. Lewis quote that kind of speaks to you on, on a level that the other stuff doesn't really speak
0: to you on? Well a couple of things. One, uh, and I had to look these up. I don't have them memorized. You know, I'm not a quote person like you are, but, um, but one thing I really loved is he once said, someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. Yeah. (laughs) And I just love that because it's like, okay, as children, we have these dreams and fairy tales and, you know, what if the impossible could become possible? And, um, you know, the Bible, I'm a preacher and so i think in terms of scripture an awful lot and there's a a prophecy in the book of joel i believe it is where it says uh that um old men will dream dreams you know a futuristic prophecy the old you know young men will prophesy and old men will dream dreams and that's kind of what it feels like c.s lewis is getting at and that you know we go through a period of life where when you're young you believe in the impossible you know, and you just you sort of have a simplistic idea of faith. And yeah. so when someone tells you a, a fairy tale story, oh, that's that's true. Yeah. That, that could be real. There could really be monsters in my closet and under my bed and yeah. and things like that. But then we grow up and we lose that innocence and cynicism sneaks in. And then when we get older and, you know, maybe I'm starting to get to this phase in my life. I'm not quite 50 yet. But when you get older, you sort of soften a little bit. Yeah. And so maybe you start thinking again of the impossible. Um, there's sort of a an idea of you know older people when they start to face their death, you know their cynicism is maybe a little less pronounced, and they start to think about the afterlife and the belief and hope that there is one. Yeah. Instead of you know when you're in your twenties and thirties and forties, twenties you know I'm going to live forever. Your thirties, you're too busy because you're being so productive. That's usually considered your most productive decade. Yeah. Your 40s. Now you're starting, you're an expert at something now and you're starting to pass on your ability and skills to the younger generation. But then you start to get a little older and you start thinking, oh wait, I might not be here yeah. 20 years ago. Midlife crisis. My life. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly it. And so that's one of the ones that, that I love. Give me, give me one of yours and, and then we'll come back. I've got another well, one. Well, it's, um, it's kind of long, so I'm going to read it. Okay. So I, I don't like to read
1: to you guys during the podcast, but I'm going to read, I'm going to break that rule just this once so okay. that I can, you know, get the whole thing and I can do the quote justice. So this is uh in the last battle, the The book, it's the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And, uh, you know, Edmund, Lucy, Peter, Susan, they've, they've all, you know, they're the Kings and Queens of Narnia and they're, they're together and they're all bowing before Aslan, you know, cause he's the true King and everything like that. but, Uh, he's kind of speaking to them, and he's like thanking them for what they've done. But he says this, he goes, And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of their real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. C.S. Lewis, The Last Battle. (laughs) And like just that quote alone, it almost brings tears to my eyes because it's it's so powerful. Like you finally realize what C.S. Lewis was trying to tell you and all these stories. And he goes. um. You're only being prepared for the real story, and that's that's your life, and it's it's what you're going to do with it, and you can choose to make it a good story, basically. And I I, I look at C.S. Lewis, and when he's trying to basically say, uh, through the Chronicles of Narnia that it's the power of sin that kind of uh, can corrupt us, and and all this kind of stuff. But I think one of the more important themes that he wants us to look on is you have two choices in your life you know one is to you can be this miserable person that he actually used to be he used to be a very miserable man you know or you can choose the happiness which which he believes came through Christ Jesus cuz you know Aslan is that person for him like it was like you said before uh Aslan was just kind of a retelling of how Jesus might enter this world and if you follow him and that's kind of what he was trying to say and i i know i as a Christian, it, it it does get you kind of emotional. Just even that one quote, it's so good. Mm-hmm. And um, like you know, there's seven books in this series, and it's it's a long series to just read from the first one to the to the last one. It'll take you a long time. And it I don't know, it didn't really hit
0: me until that last quote, and I was like, wow, you know. Well, I love the phrase, each chapter is better than the one before, something like yeah. that. And you know, again, I'm I'm getting to be about almost fifty, and it's easy for people when they get to be my age to start looking back and think about what used to be, and you know, the good old days. Yeah. And um, you know, the glory days of your life. For some people, that's you know their high school years when they won the state championship as a yeah. football player, or you know, or or for me, I was more involved in theater. So when I was able to play, you know, what such and such a role in in a play or a musical or something for other people it's those college days when they first get their first taste of freedom and independence yeah. and and their first uh, the first real friends that you make for a lifetime are often in college if you're fortunate enough to yeah. to go to a college you know and then and then other people talk about their child you know rearing their children as the best days yeah. when their children were young and they still you know your little little boy came up to you with his toy and just assumed of course daddy can fix this there's yeah. nothing daddy can't fix because he's a superhero by himself yeah and so but that way of looking at life where and i've kind of always tried to live my life this way where you know the the past was good i enjoyed parts of it i don't have any desire to go back to high school i have no <laughs> desire to go back to college uh i loved my kids when they were young but i enjoyed my sons now oh, more yeah. than i ever did you know, as younger boys, because now they're more friends than sons. You know, and Yeah. I don't know. So I think of, I like that a lot. It really speaks to me. I've got another one that that this is a little bit more um, ethereal than the previous one I said about. What's it uh, from? Uh, I I honestly don't. I don't think it's from a book oh, necessarily. It's
1: just him speaking, probably. He said.
0: Um, he said, "If you aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither." Oh. Oh, and, yeah. You know, that's just kind of a more ethereal. That's the kind of thing, you know, you might see in someone's yearbook uh, quote or something like that. And But I just like the idea of it. If you're aiming at heaven, you know, Colossians 3 says, seek the things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of yeah. God. And uh, and he also says, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. So if you put God first in your life and seek heaven seek the kingdom of God, seek the glory of God first, then everything else falls into place in oh, yeah. such a way that if you, you know, Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you seek to serve and self-sacrifice, then honor and glory will come. Oh, yeah. But that shouldn't be your goal. You should seek to do for others, to sacrifice for others, yeah. to give your life in, in the desire of serving others as a way of serving others. God, who, by the way, put us first in his life by yeah. sending his son Jesus to die for our sins. You know, um, and so I don't know. I just like that that idea, that thought of, of um, you know, as I'm a Christian, of course, you're a Christian. Yeah. But I don't think you have to be a Christian to even think of that. If you think about putting something bigger than yourself as the center of your life, instead of yourself at the center of your life, then everything else in your life is going to fall into place in a much more meaningful and fulfilling way. Well, there's a, a bit of
1: symbolism, you know, in, in some of his works that I want to touch on. Cause I came across this in the research before this episode. And my first thought was, "Mm, I don't know if I see that too much. Cause like I was, I was thinking about what they were saying and I was just like, I don't know, but I'm going to talk. I want to see what you think. Um, Because, you know, you being a pastor, you kind of have more of a knowledge of of the Bible than I do and everything. But if you look at the Chronicles of Narnia, many commentators and experts on the words, uh, not words, but the books, have said that they think the seven deadly sins were infused with the books. So each book has a part that represents one of the seven deadly sins. And I was, like, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, like the seven books or whatever. But then I started thinking about it, and I was like, where? I couldn't find anything. Okay, before we go too far, uh, seven deadly sins. What does that mean? Well, you know, in the Bible, uh, there's seven supposed de- deadly sins. And uh, there's gluttony, lust, greed, sloth, pride, anger, and envy.
0: Yeah, this is... Um, it comes from scripture, but it's also the idea of seven deadly sins is popularized by uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, yeah. and he's the one who came up with this this summarizing this thought uh, yeah. the seven deadly sins. So,
1: and it's like if you commit these sins, you almost assuredly are going to speed up your death, basically. Right. Well, I, w- I want to go through each book, okay, and I want to point out. Where the supposed sin for that book is, and I want to see if you agree. All right, so let's let's go down the list. Um, start with what's your first one? Um, well, let's go in the order of the series, not the order of the publication, but how they are like the the chronological order, yeah. not uh, uh, publication order. Yeah, so the magician's nephew is supposedly anger. Okay, what's the magician's nephew about? Um, about Diggory and Polly, they go to uh, Narnia, and it's it's kind of a, a create like the creation story of Narnia, right. a little bit. Uh, but Diggory's uncle is supposed to be a magician, and he's kind of like the the gateway to Narnia for them. And they're inclined towards tempers. Diggory and Polly are they they kind of have a bit of a temper, and they fight a lot. Now. One of these angry quarrels results in Diggory waking Jadis, the white witch, and she's kind of like the big bad villain of Narnia. Like, she was the one in 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 The Lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. That That's who the witch is referring to, is Jadis, the, the white witch, uh, who also has a very bad temp- temper, and she brings trouble to Narnia. And so I can see this one, definitely. And, like, there's even the magician. Diggory dubs his uncle the mad magician, kind of as a pun, as he's a bit crazy, but he also is a little
0: temperamental and everything so you're saying this is
1: the the deadly sin of anger anger all right and so then the second book the horse and his boy is pride and i can see this one too the horse Bree and the girl avis and prince Rabadash all have their pride humbled by aslan they're very vain and you know and everything but aslan throughout the course of the books basically you know puts them down in their place and says you know i'm the only one you know who's 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 worthy of anything? You guys need to realize that
0: I'm your leader, basically. Yeah, and one of the most interesting parts, uh, uh, one of the most interesting moments in that story, is when the prince, when he, when he humbles himself, his character changes in a oh big yeah, way, and then in a profound way that makes him so he goes from you know incredibly hated to very loved. In my view, that's the way I, I reacted. Yeah. You
1: know? Okay, so the next one is. Probably one of C.S. Lewis's most famous books, or probably the most famous. It action. is. So I don't think there's yeah. any question. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is where it gets a little iffy for me. Okay. So all right.
0: So it's, it's gluttony. And right, from the Sweeties, from Edmund yeah. getting the Turkish Delight.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, they argue that Edmund's taste for Turkish Delight leads him to the point where he betrays his siblings. And... I because I've read the book so many times, I have a little bit of an issue with that because I feel it was more jealousy. Yeah, that you know kind of led him
0: down, or that even path. lust for power. You know, yeah. the desire to be the the because she she says you're going to be the king. Yeah, and he says, oh, so Peter will be a king too. Yeah, and she's like, no, not necessarily, or something like that. Yeah. So I think you're right. I, I think that this was the weakest one. In fact, in my view, this is the one that proves that. Lewis himself didn't have this in yeah. mind when he wrote.
1: Yeah, because he never once stated this.
0: Unless he was doing. I just thought of this. Unless he, because he wrote the line "The Witch of the Wardrobe" first. Maybe. What if he went back and thought, you know, this might be an interesting way to tell the seven deadly sins, and I've got the gluttony in there. So I don't know. That's. Yeah. It, it seems right. a little bit far fetched, but if if we're gonna
1: stretch, you know, and. It take we take meaning to ourselves, not really what he was trying to say, but like,
0: you know, we can gather our own meanings from it, then maybe. Yeah. Now so. I do think there's one interesting thing about his desire for the Turkish delight is pronounced in the book. Okay? Yeah. And in the story and in the movie, it comes out even stronger. Oh yeah. It could be, is it because she's somewhat enchanted him magically in his desire for this in which case maybe the gluttony is a little bit more significant well because remember um she does say the line she goes
1: you betrayed them for sweeties yeah or whatever and so like maybe uh, maybe that's what they're that's the confirmation line that it really is about gluttony i don't know and that's
0: when he realized oh boy look what i've done
1: yeah well (laughs) all right so what's the next one so the next one is prince caspian and this one deals with Luxury or lust, so I I think Lewis probably would have considered the normal meaning of lust kind of unsuitable for children. So maybe the idea of like the lust for power or luxury. Yeah,
0: because lust isn't just you know you got a hankering for a pretty girl. Yeah, it's it's a uh, lust in its biblical form just means a strong, intense desire for something, yeah. someone. So, and if you were to look in the book, it would be
1: uh, King Miraz shows a lust for power. Which can be seen as the meaning of the older luxury, you know, because like he was willing to uh, kill Prince Caspian's father in order to gain uh, his like his role as the king, or whatever.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I can see that. Yeah,
1: go ahead. That's uh, the next one. So the next one would be the Voyage of the Dawn Donner. Chir- this is actually one of my favorites of the stories yeah, because it has one of my favorite characters, Eustace. Um, but it would be greed. Okay, Eustace Scrubs is he has a greed for gold and it gets him turned into the dragon and little side note here. I love the whole arc of Eustace Yeah. because uh, there's that whole scene where uh, Aslan is pulling the scales from his body and it's a painful process. Yeah. And when it's finally done and over, he's just finally relieved it's done. He's back to being a human and everything. And the symbolism there is, you know, his horrible deeds got him to become the dragon. It took Aslan in a painful process to to you know help him mm-hmm. get back on, on track.
0: Well that's true of any person. You know yeah. the process of coming through the consequences of our bad actions is invariably going to be painful for oh, the yeah. person who did the wrong. And um and but anyway, so that's greed. Uh Eustace Scrub's greed for gold gets him turned into a dragon. And so And then after he's turned into a dragon when he becomes a human again you know, his he's, character yeah. changed drastically Yeah, as a result. And he's humbled a great deal. And So the next
1: uh, book, The Silver Chair, uh, Eustace is back with Jill this time, uh, a girl from his school. And this book covers sloth. And this is another one of those iffy moments for me. But here's why. They're told by Aslan four signs that they must remember. But their apathy and carelessness... Lead them to forget at crucial moments. And Aslan has to, again, tell them the four signs that they need. All right. And it's more with Jill, I think, more because she was the one that was told them. And she barely tried. Like, she was just like, we have to remember them. And that's the first thing. That's the only thing she says about it. And when those times come, it's nowhere there. It's just careless. And so I'm like, I can see it, but I don't know if that was necessarily what he was going for. It was more coincidental, Yeah. Okay. you know? And then the last battle is envy. So Shift, the eighth, is envious of the respect that was given to Aslan and his scheme to have uh and puzzle the donkey to impersonate Aslan brings the whole world of Narnia to an end, literally. You know? And so it's the jealousy that you can have towards something like uh it can kind of ruin that whole relationship or whatever. And, and so I can actually really see this one. Like this one is one of the more stronger you know,
0: ones in my book, but I would put these in the category of these are things that people sometimes use um, maybe mnemonic devices to remember something. Yeah. So if you're a big fan of the seven books, it'd yeah. be a good way to remember okay, the seven deadly sins, like on a test or something yeah. like that, or vice versa. If you're, you know, literature class where they're studying the seven books and you already know the, you know, maybe that, I don't Ooh. know that Lewis would have, it's just,
1: I myself don't think Lewis meant this. I don't either. But the fact that there are, you know, so many experts. Sort of like, Because I was going through, there was a whole bunch of different people. They're like, yeah, I, I honestly believe that he was trying to go for that. And I was like, but, I don't know, it just seemed, and I don't know. The fact that there's so many of them think that, it's that strong enough a little
0: bit? Well, the but, purpose of the idea of the seven deadly sins is intended to be, let's, um, let's have a... a a wide-speaking, wide, uh, uh, you know, what are all the sins of humanity? What are okay. all the weaknesses of the human condition? And so I just think it's the truth that Lewis, in his writing, it's so rich and it's so applicable to the human condition that just by the nature of what he was trying to do, that all seven of these things came out.
1: Yeah. Like Honestly,
0: so you can probably find a few of them in every book. Yeah. If you looked hard enough. Yeah. I I would say even all seven in every book. I don't know. I I would say at the most
1: subliminally he did this, but I don't think it was a, a, he wanted a distinct one for each book. I don't think that at all.
0: Well, I think, yeah, I I, I think that, uh, again, it's probably more the case that he just loved these um, or he, he just told these stories in a way to say, you know, look at what the human condition is like. and, And that's what I get. All right. Well, I think that we are about done for this podcast, but... By the way, one, one little detail. It was Joy Davidman. Oh, Joy Davidman.
1: Yeah. Where did Gresham come from then?
0: I don't know. His name is... Her, her son's name was Gresham. Well, that may have been his father and that she went back to her. Oh yeah, yeah. Her maiden name is Dan. yeah.
1: I actually, I think I'm starting to remember that now. Yeah, I think yeah. that's what it was. Because he he basically told about his life. That, I'm I'm starting to remember that now.
0: He said the and I think she never changed her name even when they married. Yeah. If I remember right, I'm yeah. not 100 percent sure of that. Uh, when Joy died, C.S. Lewis wrote um, a, a book, or not a book, but a well, it was a book called "The The, the Surpri- Surprised by Joy." And there's a part of that, and I think I'm remembering that it's in this book. I, it's been a long time since I've read it. I was again back in college in the late '80s, early '90s. But there, where he gives a little bit of his own personal testimony of his how he went from being brought up as you know a believer, like almost all good young men were in England at the time, member of the Church of England and everything, yeah. um, probably brought up in in a school that was religious and and that sort of thing. And his mother, he prayed and begged God to heal his mother. Yeah. And when she didn't uh, get healed, when she died, he began to feel some anger at God. Yeah. And then when he met his wife, she helped restore some of that joy. Yeah. And so it was like her name had a dual meaning for him. Yeah. His personal joy and, Her being a person of joy, but then this time when his wife dies, yeah, he still has that, yeah, that sense because it comes from a profound relationship with, um, with a Jesus Christ who brings us the hope of joy and eternity. And I just really loved that story. Uh, it's his own personal story, for one thing. And so, if you ever, you know, any of the readers have a chance to read that, um, it's probably one of his best selling non-fiction yeah uh, works that, that he has out. Uh, he was a great apologist, as you've said, and a great writer in general. He's exactly what we're talking about in our wordist series. You know, someone who believes words have meaning yeah. and takes words and crafts wonderful stories. In that case it was to his his own. absolute meaning, right? Yeah. It's his own personal story. But there's an element of this, the thing the reason I want to bring it up is he said that the joy is that feeling of excitement and hope. It's like Sunday morning or like Christmas morning when you're about to open your Christmas presents. Mm -hmm. And there's that sense of hope and anticipation and excitement. And he said that that longing, that feeling is what he's always wanted. And in all of his life, he would look for that and he would not find it. It wasn't until he met Jesus that he discovered that real joy that that that's what that is. Our our whole life is lived in that moment of anticipation as we await the thing that's coming that's better. Yeah. So getting back to your quote earlier, this this next chapter is oh, better yeah. than the one before. Yep. It's that same sense of joy in lived in life with this idea that, you know, what's coming next is even better. And the anticipation of it is so profound and so um so enthralling that it's like I'll do anything to get that almost. So for a Christian, which I am, you know, I'll do anything in in serving Christ in order to obtain that joy, even if it means self-sacrifice. Oh, yeah. So that's one of the reasons I think C.S. Lewis is so rich and oh, yeah. so powerful. So this has been a great, I think, uh, uh, discussion. I've enjoyed it. I hope you guys who have been listening to this have enjoyed it. And uh, so where can they find us? All right. You can find us on Twitter at Wordist Podcast, and then you
1: can also find us on Facebook at, for our page at The Wordist Podcast. Um, I would say tune in next week because we're going to do probably C.S. Lewis's, you know, best friend from Oxford, J.R. Tolkien. Uh, the, Lord and, the Lord of the Rings. And I, I think what we're going to kind of do is we're going to kind of uh, introduce J.R. Tolkien through the friendship of C.S. Lewis. We'll kind of lead from C.S. Lewis into him in the episode. Um, and so stay tuned for that. It's actually really interesting, because if you're a Sam and Frodo fan, then you don't realize it, but that friendship is based off of the real-life friendship of Jared Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. That'll be interesting.
0: So um, so if they want to befriend you online, where can they do that?
1: Uh, on Twitter, I would say, follow me at Danny underscore A Phantom. And then on Facebook, you can find me at Daniel Purcell, and you know... I, I'll be regularly posting about the wordist, and you'll get to know when and uh, like when we'll be posting because we're going to try and do it on weekends mostly, probably sometime between Friday and Sunday night uh, when we'll record. We're recording today on Sunday, Um, but we're going to try and do at least one a week. So stay tuned. We're going to have a lot of fun with this. We're probably going to do about six to ten ish for this season, and then we'll move on to themes of wordists for the next few seasons and stuff. Right now, we're just kind of going through my favorites. Kevin here is along for the ride,
0: <laughs> basically. So C.S. Lewis is definitely one of my favorites. As yeah. Well. So what about you? Well, on Twitter, K-A Purcell, that's P-U-R-C-E-L-L. And that's the easiest way to find me on Twitter. I also have a website, which I blog occasionally, which is kevinpurcell.org. And then I write tech reviews at uh, churchtechtoday.com. You can find me there right. as well. All right, thanks thanks for listening, guys, and
1: uh, we'll be signing off. This has been The, the Wordist.